Please turn in your Bibles to Psalm 110. Psalm 110. As our scripture reading this morning. And following the reading of scripture, we'll sing the Gloria Patri, which is printed for you in your bulletin. Psalm 110. And please stand for the reading of God's holy word. Of David, a psalm, the Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. The Lord will extend your mighty scepter from Zion. You will rule in the midst of your enemies. Your troops will be willing on your day of battle. Arrayed in holy majesty from the womb of the dawn, you will receive the dew of your youth. The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek. The Lord is at your right hand. He will crush kings on the day of his wrath. He will judge nations heaping up the dead and crushing the rulers of the whole earth. He will drink from a brook beside the way. Therefore, he will lift up his head. And God will add his blessing to this reading of his word. Amen. Please be seated. As we've been reflecting on the four elements of Christ's exaltation after he was uh, crucified, dead and buried, descended into hell. On the third day, he rose again from the dead. He ascended into heaven and sits on the right hand of God, the Father Almighty. And from there, he will come to judge the living and the dead. So the four elements of it is resurrection, his ascension, and today his session or sitting at the right hand of God and uh, then his return at the end to judge the living and the dead. And there are three main thoughts for us this morning going along with the three questions. The first is what is the truth or the meaning of the fact that Jesus sits at the right hand of God? Uh, the second is, what is the benefit of Jesus for us sitting there at that right hand? And then third is, what is the benefit or the, really the comfort to us that Jesus will come again to judge the living and the dead? So what is the truth or the meaning or the significance of Jesus sitting at the right hand of God? Turn, if you would, to Hebrews chapter 1. Hebrews 1, verses 3 and 4. The letter of Hebrews begins by reminding us of how God spoke in times past in various ways, but in these last days he's spoken to us by his Son. Uh, and then in verses 3 and 4, he reflects on that uh, person and the, what has happened. 
Verse 3, the sun is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being, sustaining all things by his powerful word. And after he had provided purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty in heaven. So he became as much superior to the angels as the name he has inherited is superior to theirs. And so after he had provided purification for our sins, he then sat down at the right hand of the Father in heaven. And there's two things about that throne and sitting at that right hand that are significant in terms of its meaning. Uh, the, the one is that it is a, a demonstration of the supreme power and might, the omnipotence of Almighty God. That's the throne is representing that might and omnipotence and power. And another thing that throne represents for us is uh, the dignity, the glory, the majesty of God. And so that place that reveals God's omnipotence and his power, that place that reveals his majesty and dignity is the place to which Jesus has gone to sit down. And there are two things about Jesus sitting there that are important for us to reflect on and think about. Jesus sitting down at the right hand of God is a vivid picture of the completion of Jesus' work. All that was necessary for Jesus to do to accomplish our redemption was done. And so he ascended to the right hand of God and sits down at the right hand of God in heavenly glory. And it's really a a wonderful thing for us to think about, a thrilling thing for us to think about how uh, Jesus has completed the work that he was sent to do. He became the victor over sin, death, and the devil. And it was given to him then to sit at the place of honor and exaltation at God's right hand. And so his ascension and his session at God's right hand is a wonderful picture of him, of the completion of his work. But the second thing that we see and think about, reflect on, of Jesus sitting there is that he's very actively involved in doing something. We, won't, we don't want to think of Jesus as he sits down as though he's sitting there inactive. The work is finished, or at least the redemptive work is finished, but it's not as though he's sitting down. That's something you and I would do. If you've been out mowing in the yard and you come in, you, you sit down. And for just a minute, before the honeydews start coming in, just for a minute, you'd like to just sit there and do nothing. Well, when Christ ascended to the right hand of God and sat down, it's not as though he's sitting there doing nothing. He's very active and very involved on behalf of his people. Turn to Ephesians chapter 1. Ephesians chapter 1, verse 18. We get a, another glimpse of this exaltation of Christ and what is being done, what's happening, what he's accomplishing, what he's doing. So in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 18 I pray also that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened in order that you may know the hope to which he has called you, 
the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints, and his incomparably great power for us who believe. That power is like the working of his mighty strength, which he exerted in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly realms, far above all rule and authority, power and dominion, and every title that can be given, not only in the present age, but also in the one to come. And God placed all things under his feet and appointed him to be head over everything for the church. So God the Father exalted Christ to the right hand and he placed everything in heaven and on earth under his feet. And so Jesus is seating there, he's ruling and he's reigning on our behalf. Jesus, when he was commissioning his disciples as he was about to leave this earth, uh, says to them, all authority on heaven and earth has been given to me, therefore go. So he's been exalted in all authority, whether in heaven or whether on earth, belong to him. Uh, Peter says, phrases it this way in 1 Peter 3, he has gone into heaven and is at God's right hand with angels, authorities, and powers in submission to him. We read it in Psalm 110. The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. He's sitting there actively ruling and reigning for the good of his people and for the benefit of his people. And it's very important to see that. One other passage is in 1 Corinthians 15. If you would turn there to 1 Corinthians 15. Paul has been interacting on the doctrine of, of the resurrection of Christ and seeking to answer those people who said the resurrection has a, has a, is not going to happen. There is no resurrection of the dead. It, um, and so he's arguing against their objections. <clears throat> and he brings us and picking up his line of thought in verse 20, 1 Corinthians 15, 20, that Christ has indeed been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For since death came through a man, the resurrection of the dead came also through a man. For as in Adam all die, so in Christ all will be made alive. But each in his own turn, Christ the first fruits, and then when he comes, those who belong to him. Now here's the, here's the key verse. Then the end will come when he hands over the kingdom to God the Father after he has destroyed all dominion, authority, and power. For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. In this passage, along with the other ones that we read, you see this wonderful, beautiful interplay within the triune God. Christ, having accomplished our redemption, is seated at the right hand of the Father, and the Father places all the nations of the earth under his feet. And Christ is right now having dominion over them. And he is ruling and he's reigning and uh, they're going to become a footstool for his feet. And all dominion and authority belongs to Christ. And he's subduing these nations. 
He's subduing all nations by his power and his might for the benefit of his people. And then on that last and great and wonderful day, when Christ comes again, what does he do? He's conquered all these nations. What does he turn and do? He gives them all back to the Father as a gift for his glory. You see, it's a wonderful picture of the active, current work of our Savior in exercising rule, reign, and dominion over all authority and all power. Now, we have a question about that, and we're going to come back to that question in a minute. But that's what he's doing now. That's what it means that he's seated at the right hand of God. The second main thought is, what is the benefit to us of Jesus seated there in glory? We've already anticipated that a little bit. But this question 51 parallels very much question 49, which we looked at in detail last week. Uh, That question is, what advantage is is Christ's ascension into heaven? And the answer to that question is, first, that he is our advocate in the presence of his Father in heaven. Secondly, that we have our flesh in heaven as a sure pledge that he as the head will also take us up to himself. Thirdly, that he sends his spirit as an earnest by whose power we seek the things which are above, where Christ sits on the right hand of God and not on things on the earth. And the benefits from that answer and this answer kind of overlap. He pours out his Holy Spirit upon us. He pours out rich heavenly blessings upon us. And then a parallel to what we've already talked about, he defends and preserves us against all our enemies. And it's very important for us to appreciate and understand and believe this. Because in this world, we have many things that dismay us. If you allow yourselves to read the paper, or even worse, if you watch television, you'll see a lot of things that are just overwhelming. The opposition to the gospel and to the church is prevalent not only in our own country, but certainly around the world. And we have to appreciate and understand and believe and embrace the truth that Jesus is ruling and reigning right now for the good of his people. And there are various passages of scripture that encourage us. In Isaiah chapter 54, Isaiah says, No weapon formed against you will stand. Doesn't matter what plans that the world has against God and his children, no weapon they prepare and they plan to use can stand, can prevail against God's holy purposes. Uh, Psalm 110, uh, the Lord will extend your mighty scepter from Zion and you will rule in the midst of your enemies. But we struggle with that. We don't seem to see it. Turn to Hebrews chapter 2. Hebrews chapter 2, verse, verses 5 to 9. <clears throat> it's a passage that's talking about why Jesus had to become man. Uh, and here he's talking about 
the glory that's going to be coming. He's going to quote from Psalm 8. He's going to quote from Psalm 110. The author here is picking it up, the, the, the train of thought in verse 5, Hebrews 2. It is not to angels that he has subjected the world to come about which you are, we are speaking. But there is a place where someone has testified, what is man that you are mindful of him? the Son of Man, that you care for him. You made him a little lower than the angels. You crowned him with glory and honor and put everything under his feet. And put everything under him, God left nothing that is not subject to him. Yet, at present, we do not see everything subject to him. But we see Jesus who was made a little lower than the angels, now crowned with glory and honor because he suffered death so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. The writer of Hebrews talks about it. Jesus Christ is exalted over everything. But we don't see it. Not by the eyes of the flesh at any rate. We still struggle with the prosperity of the wicked. Psalm 73, it's should be one of those marked often in your Bible. Psalm 73, he's struggling. Why do the wicked prosper? Why are they healthy and they're happy and they're rich and they have everything and they're at ease and the righteous are weak and they suffer and they, they struggle and they're oppressed? Why is that God? And the writer of the psalmist says, if I had... Considered this, my feet almost slipped. And if I had spoken thus, I would have betrayed your generation. But then he says, I went into the temple of God and I saw their end. God is telling us what the truth is. And you and I have to get our eyes above what we see superficially in this world. To what is true, which is Christ seated at the right hand of God, ruling and reigning and, and, and subduing every authority. So you and I have to live by faith and not by sight. To know the truth of it, and it's a very important truth, it's a significant truth that it helps our living our Christian life. And we move on to the third thought. What is the comfort in Jesus' return in judgment? That combined with what we've already heard. What, what do we gain from this? How does it help us live our Christian lives confidently and hopefully? Uh, what is the confidence? What is the comfort in knowing that Jesus is going to come to judge the living and the dead? And it's a good question because I doubt that we, never, we think often about the judgment of God and think, well, that's a comforting thought. Jesus is going to return in judgment. Well, that cheers my day. <clears throat> Probably don't exactly think of it along that way, but it is a comforting thought, and it's an important thought and helpful to us. Paul calls it uh, our blessed hope. Uh, after speaking in Titus about the grace of God that has brought salvation, he says we wait Uh, We live self-controlled lives while we wait for the blessed hope and the glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. It's our blessed hope. How is it a blessed hope? 
How is it a comfort? Well, the first thing is it's a great comfort because on that day is the acquittal of all God's people. It's the declaration that they are just or justified in the sight of God and the curse has been taken away. It's the open declaration. It's a true statement. You and I are justified here and now, but on that day, openly before the entire universe is God's declaration that these people are mine. They belong to me. And they stand under my protection. We don't have to fear when we appear before the judgment throne of God. Because the judge, the Lord Jesus Christ, has already taken the judgment for us. So when we stand there, we stand under the covering of his blood. It's not that we're innocent. We'll struggle with sin as long as we live in these bodies for the rest of our lives. So it's not that we stand before the throne without sin, but we stand before the throne and there's going to be no sentence handed down because the Son has paid the price. You see, on the day of judgment, it's not as though God is going to look over things and try to figure out what he's going to do with us. He already knows what he's going to do with us. He's going to usher us into the heavenly glory in our resurrected bodies. Kevin DeYoung has a very helpful paragraph about this. He says, when you stand before the Holy Son of God at the end of the age... And all your deeds and thoughts are laid bare for the world to see. All your petty jealousies, all your lustful glances, all your murderous thoughts, all your self-absorbed days, there there will still be nothing to fear. There is no chance that Christ will look you up and down and cry out, Curse this one, because he already became the curse for you. He can no more be, uh, you can no more be condemned at the throne of God's judgment than God can condemn himself a second time. That's why it's your blessed hope and the glorious appearing of your great God and Savior because it's going to be the open declaration of your justification and your welcome into eternal glory. A second aspect, which includes both us and the enemies of the gospel, is that this will be the final end of all things for humanity. The conclusion of all the turmoil in our world as we get there. Turn to 2 Thessalonians chapter 1. 2 Thessalonians chapter 1. The enemies of God will be dealt with. And in 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 6, God is just. He will pay back trouble to those who trouble you and give relief to you who are troubled and to us as well. This will happen when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven in blazing fire 
with his powerful angels. He will punish those who do not know God and do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. They will be punished with everlasting destruction and shut out from the presence of the Lord and from the majesty of his power. On that day, he comes to be glorified in his holy people and to be marveled at among all those who have believed. This includes you because you believed our testimony to you. On the one hand, on that day, God will deal with those who do not know the Lord, do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ, those who have troubled the church, those who have troubled Christians and brought trouble upon them. And it's a terrifying day for the, uh, the unbeliever. It's a day that ought to bring them great fear if they were to think about it or to anticipate it. They ignore it. They deny it. And it's not a day that we rejoice in in the sense that we're happy for misery to come upon people, but we are excited. We all are um, delighted in the glory of God. We want God to be glorified more than anything else. It's his glory that we want to see. It's not our glory that we want to see. It's his glory that we want to see. How is this a comfort to us or a help to us? It's a comfort and help to us because one of the things that we frustrate, that frustrates us in this world is injustice. The disparity between people, those things which are done that are unfair and, and um, harm people. And on that day, God's justice will be vindicated. And it's the vindication of his justice, which is what we will bring us comfort. That his purposes will be fulfilled. Uh, the vision that John received in the book of Revelation about the, the saints who are under the altar. They cry out to God. They pray to God. They say, how long, sovereign Lord, holy and true, until you judge the inhabitants of the earth and avenge our blood. And God gives them white robes and he says, wait for a little while. On that great day, one of the things that will be taken care of is the end of the wicked will take place. And it is something for which we will find um, maybe not happiness, but at least we will be glad God is glorified and his justice is vindicated. But the second thing is, for our own end, as God's people, even as we've been anticipated and thinking about it, the coming of the judge means the end. The end of tears, the end of depression, the end of cancer and disease, the end of sorrow, uh, the end of um, sinning, the end of loneliness. It'll be the end of all that. And it'll be the beginning. It'll be the beginning of that great and wonderful day, the, the, the day of ceaseless praise to God and of wonderful communion with him. One of the things that uh, makes our communion with God, that, that disturbs it, is our own sin. It clouds us. Paul, in 1 Corinthians 13, says, We see through a glass darkly. 
We don't see God clearly. We can't see God clearly because our vision's clouded. But think about that day. Think about that wonderful day when you're brought into the presence of your Savior and you know there's nothing, there's no sin to cloud your vision. You're seeing the Lord in a way that you can't even imagine seeing him. And it will fill you with such joy that there is your Savior and you can see him without any cloud in, in his wonderful glory, un, undimmed communion with God, a joy that will never end. And what a difference that makes in our Christian living right now. In our Christian living right now, we are filled with that cloud, filled with the discouragements, filled with the frustrations, but on that day, it will all be gone. And you and I are called again to look in a different direction. Paul in 2 Corinthians 4 says, Therefore we do not lose heart, though outwardly we're wasting away, yet inwardly we are being renewed day by day. For our light and momentary troubles, you understand what he's calling light and momentary troubles? He's uh, persecution, beatings, being stoned, shipwreck. That, for Paul, are light and momentary troubles. I don't want those kind of light and momentary troubles. But that's what he says are light and momentary troubles. He says, are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. So we fix our eyes not on what is seen, but on what is unseen. For what is seen is temporary, but what is unseen is eternal. It transforms our vision, you see, to see these truths. The Christ on the throne, he's ruling and reigning. Uh, Paul in Romans 8 says, I consider that our present sufferings are not uh, worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. And on the last letter that Paul wrote, his final words, I have fought the good fight, I have finished the race, I have kept the faith. There is in store for me a crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will give to me on that day. And not to me only, but to all those who long for his appearing. See, it transforms our view of life. It doesn't take away all the discouragements and the disappointment and the frustrations, but it does help us to live beyond them. And to look above them. Because whether we see Christ now over all the kingdoms, we're, we're, if we've seen him put down all the kingdoms, the fact is he's ruling and reigning. And even in our own lifetimes, we have seen God bring to naught wicked rulers. He's brought nations down. He's ruling and reigning right now on your behalf. And it's for you and I to embrace that Savior and to love him and to long for that day when we will see him and be with him forever. May you find that your hope and your strength and your peace. Amen. Let us pray. Father in heaven, we do thank you so much for the glory of Christ seated at your right hand. We ask, O oh Lord, that you might help us to raise our eyes heavenward to see him in his glory. 
and to endure the disappointments of this life and the frustrations and the challenges with with hope because we know that that he reigns that he is indeed the king of kings and the lord of lords and we will see him as he is on that last great and wonderful day may you help us to rest in him we pray in jesus name amen